Father, thank you for this day, for the privilege that we have to study your word together. I'm so grateful for the fact that you have revealed yourself so clearly to us in Scripture, as we know from the testimony of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Creation itself manifests the reality that there is a God, and Scripture says that you have clearly revealed certain attributes about yourself in creation, your power, your wisdom. And God, we're grateful that we can look to the world around us and even the universe. We look to the stars and galaxies and everything outside of this planet. We see clear evidence that there's a God. But Lord, you're so gracious because that would be as far as our knowledge could go if you did not provide us with a written record of your works in history consummated in sending your son Jesus Christ into this world to live a perfect life, to die a substitutionary death on the cross on behalf of all who would ever believe and to be resurrected victoriously from the grave three days later. And we're so thankful, Father, that it's through Christ, through faith in him, that the God who we know exists becomes all the more personal to us, that we can, as it were, take hold of you by faith, that we can commune with you through prayer, through scripture reading, and even through gathering together with other believers like we're doing tonight to encourage one another to love and good deeds and to, to strengthen one another's faith as we share how your faithfulness has been exhibited in each of our lives. And I pray, Father, that our time together tonight would be, that it would be a means to that end, that we would be further encouraged in our faith through listening to the insights that are provided as we reflect on the discussion questions from the fourth chapter of John's Gospel and as we just fellowship as we've done before this lesson and as I'm sure we'll do after, Lord, that this would be a time where we treasure you even greater as we leave this place than we did when we walked in tonight. And I pray for your special blessing upon each family that's represented around this table. I ask, Father, that you would reveal yourself to them in special ways that you would draw them ever more near to you. Lord, that you would give them clarity as to how they can serve you with greater effectiveness, with the gifts that you've entrusted to them, with the responsibilities that you have granted to them. May they be good stewards of those responsibilities. And Father, as we leave this place, may we be your ambassadors before watching world, pointing others away from ourselves and to you, the author and perfecter of our faith the God of our salvation, our Heavenly Father, whom we love and we thank for all the gifts and all the blessings that you've lavished upon us in this life. We commit this study to you now, Father. We ask your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom as we engage with the text that is laid before us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as you guys know, we're in the fourth chapter of this workbook, and we are also in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, so pretty cool how the editors and publisher of this workbook was able to bring those things into continuity with one another. 54 verses to read tonight. And as I mentioned beforehand, we have less people here tonight than normal. So uh, we're going to have to read bigger chunks of scripture to compensate for the lack of volunteers to read. So I think what we'll do here is instead of I originally had it as nine, six verse increments. So I think what we'll do just to make it uh, a little bit more balanced here is we'll do one, two, three, four. 
We'll do five sets of about 12 verses. One, two, three, four, and five. One person will read less than 12 verses. But I'll take verses 1 to 12 of chapter 4, John's Gospel. Can I get somebody to take verses 13 to 24? All right, Martina and then Hannah, your hand went up. Would you take 25 to 36? And then somebody, if they would be willing to take 37 to 48? Perfect. And then Greg, if you want to take 49 to 54, um, that'll be great. And um, if you're following along in our workbook, New King James Version from verse, or excuse me, from page 30 into page 33. So that's what I'll be reading from, starting in verse 1, John chapter 4. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So Jesus came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to long. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one whom you know now have is not your husband. Is that you spoke truly? The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our father worship on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place for one out to one worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you are neither on this mountain is not, nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Not know we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit, and truth for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in Spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one speaking to you, am He. Just then, as His disciples arrived, just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with the woman. Yet no one 
said, what do you want? Or why are you walking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four more months, and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields, because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is ready. The, the reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. Barring this, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own work. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Canaan of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum, whose son was sick. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Mm -hmm. The noble man saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, the servants met him, and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them, hour when he began to amend, and they said unto him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus had said unto him, Thy son liveth, and himself believed, and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Amen. Well, huge chapter to read. I'm grateful for all the volunteers who read and Unfortunately, this will be considered a shorter portion of Scripture compared to what we're going to have to read the next couple of lessons. I think they've got us reading um, like two to three chapters at a time over the next couple of sections. So um, we'll definitely need plenty of you guys to help in reading in the weeks to come. But as we dive into what we're going to be covering in chapter four of this workbook, you'll notice under the drawing near section, there's a couple of questions that are pretty personal. Uh, first question, how satisfying is your Christian walk right now? Second question, 
And what areas of life do you sense you might be pursuing your own agenda rather than God's will for you? And just for the sake of keeping our focus tonight on the text of John's gospel and and really trying to keep things more objective than personal and subjective, we're not going to cover those two questions tonight. I would encourage you all, though, just between you and the Lord to, if you have time and you haven't done so already, go through those questions and really ask yourself um, those questions before the living God. Reflect on your current spirituality. Reflect on what your walk as a Christian looks like and reflect on some ways in which maybe your lifestyle isn't in, in, in close conformity to God's will as it should be. That could be a, a really helpful devotional thought for you guys to have as you um, are able to do so either tonight or at some point this week. So with that in mind, let's move on to the context that's concluded right there in the middle of page 29. I'm going to read that first paragraph and then I'll need a volunteer to read from by recording down to the end of page 29. So if somebody would read that after I read the top paragraph, Martina's is going to read that great. So let me read this. Again, we're, we're getting a, a big picture of what's going on in this chapter before we begin really getting into the weeds of the discussion questions that MacArthur is going to have for us to reflect on. So the context, MacArthur notes the following. This wonderful story of the Samaritan woman who finds Jesus reinforces the gospel's main theme that Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God. The thrust of these verses is not so much the woman's conversion, but that Jesus is Messiah. Important also is the fact that this chapter demonstrates Jesus' love and understanding of people. His love for humankind knows no boundaries, for he lovingly and compassionately reaches out to a woman who is a social outcast. In contrast to the limitations of human love, Christ exhibits the character of divine love that is indiscriminate and all-encompassing. Very good. So um, go ahead and flip over to page 30 now. That is the 30,000 foot flyover of the context that is undergirding chapter 4. Now we're going to look at a major key to the text that is going to, I hope, get us into a couple of really useful discussion questions to think about for um, where we're going to be headed as we interact with chapter 4 of John's Gospel. These two discussion questions will replace the two discussion questions that MacArthur included at the beginning of this lesson, because I do think that they're a little bit more in keeping with what the text reveals to us. So let me read that first paragraph, and then we'll talk about the two discussion questions that I've thought of in light of the overarching context of John chapter 4. Keys to the text, top of page 30, Samaria or Samaritans. When the nation of Israel split politically after Solomon's rule, 
King Omri named the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel, Samaria. And we see that in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 24. The name eventually referred to the entire district which had been taken captive by Assyria in 722 B.C. While Assyria led most of the populace of the ten northern tribes away into the region which today is northern Iraq, it left a sizable population of Jews in the northern Samaritan region and then transported many non-Jews into Samaria. These groups intermingled to form a mixed race through intermarriage. Eventually, tension developed between the Samaritans and the Jews who returned from captivity. The Samaritans withdrew from the worship of Yahweh at Jerusalem and established their worship at Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Samaritans regarded only the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, as authoritative. As a result of this history, Jews repudiated the Samaritans and considered them heretical. Intense ethnic and cultural tensions raged historically between the two groups so that both avoided contact as much as possible. Okay, so we've looked at the context of John 4. We have an idea of who the Samaritans people were, which gets us into the woman at the well, which is really the bulk of chapter 4, Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. But before we get into looking at his encounter with this woman, I have a couple of questions for us to consider. The first question is this, what sin do we see being exhibited between the Israelites and the Samaritans? Based on what MacArthur notes here, what, what, what do you see as an issue between the Israelites and the Samaritans in regard to their relationship with one another. We hear of, um, remember, the the Samaritans are the the result of a people who um, are of of Jewish and uh, Samaritan descent. So you have this this intermingling of ethnicities there, and you have, as a result of that intermingling, you have the Jews looking at the Samaritans a certain way. What would you say that would be classified as? What kind, what kind of sin would that be? Racism today. Yeah, racism today. It's exactly right. Um, and, and in Scripture, the word racism is not explicitly used in the Bible. The, the technical term that's used in the Bible is partiality. It's the exact same uh, sin in terms of how it's fleshed out. Really, in a nutshell, partiality is to elevate somebody and in the process of doing so, devalue somebody on the basis of external circumstances. So in the way that this was working out, you had Jewish people who would say you were somebody who was 100% Jewish, right? You would look at somebody who was 50% Jewish or 25% Jewish or whatever their family lineage would look like. They would look over at them and say, your family intermingled with those Samaritans. You are of lesser value than me. Whereas those who are pure-blooded Jews, we're of greater value. And, and that's what we see here being modeled between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's really important to have that in mind when you think about Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. We're going to look at that in just a few moments. But just keep that in mind. There, there was a great hostility between those who were pure bloods, those who were 100% Jewish um, lineage, and those who were intermingled with the Samaritan people. It's very important to keep that in mind. Now, Second question I want us to think about here, just by way of preface to what we're going to be looking at in MacArthur's discussion questions. Aside from the sinful partiality that's being exhibited here by the Israelites, were the Jews right, nonetheless, to 
view the Samaritans as heretical based on what we read in this historical overview by MacArthur. Look at that overview again. It says that the Samaritans withdrew from the worship of Yahweh. That's God. They withdrew from the worship of God at Jerusalem and they established their worship at Mount Gerizim in Samaria. So they have a different location now where God's being worshipped, presumably being worshipped in accordance with their own preferences, their own um, desires. And then it says that the Samaritans regarded only the Pentateuch as authoritative. And you, you heard me when I read the paragraph. That might be a new term for some of you here today. Pentateuch simply means the first five books of the Old Testament. So anytime, if you're reading a commentary or if your Bible has uh, footnotes at the bottom, it might say Pentateuch. That's just a fancy word for Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So the Samaritans, when viewed through the lens of history, they saw the first five books of the Old Testament as the Word of God. They saw it as God's Word. They saw it as authoritative. But the rest of the Old Testament, according to the testimony of history, the Samaritans viewed as not authoritative. It's not the Word of God. It might be valuable to read. Um, It it may have some religious significance, but it's not ultimately authoritative for how one should live their life. That was the view that was being embraced by these Samaritan people. And the Jews looked at that and they said, now wait a second now. You're going to say that There's 39 books in the Old Testament. So five of them are authoritative. And then the 34 other books that are in the Old Testament, they're all of a sudden not the word of God. They're not authoritative. That's wrong. And then also you see here that the Samaritans, largely probably due to the hostility that was being experienced between both groups, they just said, you know what? You Israelites can go and worship in your designated spot. We want nothing to do with you. We're taking... Um, the first five books of the Bible, as it were, and we're going to go to our little corner over here at Mount Gerizim, and we're going to worship God how we want to worship God. So in light of all of that, that big picture, if you will, were the Jews at least right in this regard of viewing the Samaritans as heretical? That's the question I want us to consider just as we try to get our arms around where John's going to be going in chapter 4. What do you all think about that? You, the Samaritans weren't right? Okay. And, and Frank, what, why would you say that if you, had to, if you had to summarize that point? good thoughts absolutely what do any of you guys have any thoughts about about this situation that was brewing between the jews and the samaritans Uh, scenario there, hundred percent. Any other thoughts on this before I jump in? 
with my perspective on the ordeal. Do you think, you think that the Samaritans and the Jews think that they, they have different gods? No, they, they, all, they all believed in one God as far as we can know. But I'm saying about um, when, they, when they want to get sick, go to one, to one place and, and, and then they want to learn about God's words. So what, what's the difference? What, what can you just put together for them? For them right. Instead of being separate like that. No, that's a, that's a great thought. Um, I would say that what probably happened is that, again, the Old Testament's 39 books, right? Yeah. The Samaritans only viewed five as the Word of God. They only viewed five as authoritative. So what probably went through their minds was, we're going to keep the part of the Bible that we like. We're going to take the part of the Bible that we don't really like. Yeah. And we're going to throw that out the window. And then we're going to leave these people who've treated us really poorly. Again, the Jews are not without fault. The Jews have treated them terribly. But nevertheless, the Samaritans said, you guys can keep the other 34 books of the Old Testament. We don't want those. They're not authoritative. We don't want to worship with you guys either. We're going to go over here and we're going to do things the way we want to do it amongst ourselves. So for me, I think at least in regards to the Jews viewing them as a heretical group, I would say yes, because of this primarily. Um, Anytime you start trying to dictate what parts of God's word is authoritative and what parts of God's word is not authoritative, you have now become the judge of divine truth. You have put yourself above the place of God. And now, essentially what you're doing, you're saying, you know what, God? I know that this is all your, I know this is at least, this is what the Bible teaches, that this is all your Special revelation, your divine, supernatural, Holy Spirit-inspired, authoritative revelation. But you know what? I only like this part over here. I reject all of that other stuff. So I'm going to take what I like, and I'm going to go amongst my little tribe of people, and I'm going to go do things our way. Um, so at least I would say in terms of, in terms of the Jews' perspective, I don't, I don't want to... I don't want to be unclear here. They really treated the Samaritans poorly. They, they were exhibiting what we would call today as racism, the sin of partiality in biblical terms, so that they are not without fault. But they were correct in noting, hey, those people don't view all of the Old Testament. And at that point, that's all there was. The New Testament wasn't around yet. They're saying, hey, these guys have rejected the vast majority of God's word. That's not okay. They're heretical. Um, and throughout church history, anytime a group begins to disregard or try to discredit parts of the Bible, they've always been viewed as a heretical group and, and they should be dis, disavowed. They should not be fellowshipped with until they repent and come to embrace the full authority and inspiration of God's word. Doesn't mean you don't doesn't mean you don't interact with them for the purposes of evangelism. Doesn't mean you don't show them love and respect if you see them on the street. But in terms of in terms of viewing them as, as a brother or a sister you have to draw that hard line there and say, hey, wait a second now. You guys are embracing a completely different religion because you're not embracing the totality of God's word. And that's something that we all have to be aware of today. Because as Nancy said, um, even though Christians today may not come out and say, yeah, we only believe certain parts of the Bible are true, they, they might not pay lip service in that regard. But in practice... They'll find a church that teaches the full counsel of God's word and they'll say, man, I really don't like that because they are teaching passages that contradict my lifestyle. They contradict my family upbringing. 
Um, They're hard for me to understand or submit to. Therefore, I want nothing to do with it. I mean, there are literally churches today that will not preach parts of the Bible because there are doctrines in those parts of the Bible that they just don't want to hear. And they would never say, we don't believe those parts of the Bible. They would all say, yes, we believe it. It's true. It's God's word. But in function, in practice, they really don't believe it. They don't want to hear it. And that's kind of what was going on here with the Samaritans. Does that make sense? All right. Well, let's go to page 34 and get into these discussion questions. Get into the text here. All right, so we've talked about the Jewish-Samaritan relationship dynamic here. Number one, page 34, the question asks, how would you describe the Samaritan woman at the well, and what do you observe about her that impresses you? And that's the bulk of chapter 4, really verse 1 down to basically verse 42 all about Jesus, a Jewish man, the Messiah, the Son of God, he's interacting with a social outcast. Not only is he interacting with a woman that would have been at the very bottom of the social hierarchy at that point in history, but she's one of those good-for-nothing Samaritans, right? Really astounding passage we see here. What do you see first in in the woman? What are some qualities, observations that you see? So I think I mean, that's exactly that's exactly right. I, I put to that end. I said, you know, she was knowledgeable about the history of the Jew and the Samaritan conflict. She was very she had a very um, maybe I should say it like this. She was very self-aware. She had a very accurate awareness of who she was, who the Jews were, and then the history in today's day and age, guys. And I, I'm I'm speaking about myself here in some regards. We don't even remember. 50 years ago? I mean, this is something that went back, way back. You saw First Kings reference. I mean, this would have gone back hundreds of years, this conflict between her people and the Israelites. She had a great self-awareness. So, yeah, I think, I think that's a great point, Frank. Very good point. What else do we see from her that stood out to you? Yeah, why do you think she would have gone by herself? And it was during the day, so it had been really hot when she went there. She was an outcast. That's right. So she, she had an accurate view of herself, presumably. Otherwise, she wouldn't have gone out there by herself in the middle of the day. Um, 
We would say this, I, would, I, I think she was in a position to be saved. And what I mean by that is no self-righteous person is ever in a place where God um, or that, where they will respond to the gospel in repentance and faith. If, if you're self-righteous, Jesus said that he came uh, for, for those who were sick, not for those who were well, right? He didn't come for the righteous. He came for those who recognized that they were sinful. And she recognized it. She, she, she knew that she was a social outcast. She had no righteousness in her own. So, so she went out there in the middle of the day because she knew that was the only time she'd be able to go out there and probably not get um, heckled or ridiculed by people in her community. Um, so that's a very good observation. And, and to that end, I, I wrote she was inquisitive. Um, so did you notice that that conversation? She's asking questions. Um, she's, she's genuinely seeking information. And that kind of dovetails from what I just got done saying. Like, like she knows when you get to the point where, where you have nothing to lose, where you're at the end of your rope, that's when God can really do a work in somebody. When you are at the end of your rope, I've got no righteousness of my own. I have nothing in this world that would be appealing to anybody. Um, She's, she's had five husbands living with another guy who's not her husband. Like She wasn't impressive to society. She was, she was at the bottom of society just from the standpoint of being a woman, from the standpoint of being a Samaritan, and she's lived a life of sin. So she, she, she meets this guy who's remarkable. He identifies himself as the Messiah and offers her these, this living water. She wants to know more about this stuff. Right? She's, she's, she's seeking out knowledge here. She's seeking out truth. Any other thoughts here? I, I, I wrote just four observations down. I'm sure there's more, many more things that could be said, but did you all have any other thoughts? In a way, she was humble. She was humble, yeah. Mm-hmm. She, she knew like her place in society. Mm-hmm. She knew how she fit into the picture. Yeah, that's perfect. That's exactly right. And then what about after? Like after she has this encounter. Um, see, verse, verse 28 and 29. What do we see here? So she leaves Jesus. Yeah, she was bold, wasn't she? She goes as a Samaritan woman who has lived in absolute licentiousness for probably years. She's had five husbands, right? Probably years and years of a sinful lifestyle. She goes into the city. She goes to men. And then she says, could this be the Christ? You know, she makes this crazy claim, right? Like she has to be convinced. She has to have conviction at this point to go to men in the city in the middle of the day. Everybody knows who she is. People probably wanted nothing to do with her. And she says, could this be the Christ? I just had this incredible encounter with this man outside of town. And then, of course, we know as the narrative goes on, verse 42, (laughs) notice this. These men, they would, they would go back to the social outcast and they would say, hey, we've seen it for ourselves. We believe now too. Remarkable story, remarkable picture of grace and God's work in the heart of somebody who had 
like I mentioned before, she, she, she was just at the end of her rope. She was humble. She knew that she was in need of forgiveness. She was in need of these living waters that Christ referenced. And that brings us to number two. What did Jesus mean by the phrase living water? And it says verse 10 is the verse when he mentions it. I, I laughed with Bell today because, um, well, first off, I want to see if you guys noticed this. What did you guys find about living water? You, I'm sorry? A gift. Yeah, it's a gift. Absolutely. It's grace, right? It's a gift from God. But did you notice there on page 31, this is what I was talking about when, when Bell and I laughed. Look at, look right there in the margin on page 31, about a third of the way. It's on the right hand side of the page. It tells you the answer to the question. Uh, so I told Bell, I said, man, like, we'll, we'll, know, uh, we'll know who did the homework for this assignment because it's right there on page 31 on the right-hand side of the page. Notice this excerpt here. I'm just going to read it out loud. Um, here, here's living water as defined in Scripture, and this is drawing off of the Old Testament. MacArthur notes that living water is an allusion to a common Old Testament metaphor that referred to the knowledge of God and his grace that in turn provided cleansing, spiritual life, and power through the Spirit of God. Jesus was using this woman's physical thirst as an object lesson regarding deeper spiritual reality. So, uh, living water, as Martina mentioned, it's a gift, it's grace, and that's what MacArthur notes, drawing from the Old Testament. This is a gift of God's grace, and what does that gift of God's grace do? It provides cleansing, Spiritual cleansing, it provides spiritual life, and it provides power through the Spirit of God to go out and then live a lifestyle that's pleasing to God, a lifestyle of service to God. Um, If somebody has drank from these living waters, they're a believer. And notice what Christ says, they will never thirst again. It's not just a one-time stop at at the water well, as it were. Like This is water that has no end. It is a inexhaustible source of divine life and divine power. And it's a gift of God's grace. Do you all remember how we defined grace a few weeks ago? What is grace? Does the, the VBS answer? How would you all define grace here? So grace is getting something you don't deserve, right? Unmerited favor. Getting something you don't deserve. And then mercy not getting what you do deserve. Very easy, straightforward VBS definitions there. Um, I know we throw those words around a lot, but um, just to make sure we're clear, like living waters to receive living waters, that's God's grace. It's him giving us something we don't deserve. We're sinful. We deserve his judgment. We deserve eternal punishment in hell. But God is so rich in mercy. He's so kind that he gives us what we don't deserve. He cleanses us from our sin. He gives us salvation. He empowers us to live a lifestyle that's pleasing to him. That's grace. Well, number three. How did Jesus describe God, his father, in the conversation with the Samaritan woman? And what are the implications of this truth? Let's go back and look at verses 21 to 24. Because that's really where, in this text, we find Jesus describing the father. I'll read those verses again. And as I read those, I want you to be thinking about just some 
observations we can take away from these verses. Verse 21 to 24. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So what do we see God being portrayed as? How do we see him being described here in these verses? Let me ask a question. All right. Because I don't know the answer. I'm not asking a question that I know the answer. Well, I like, I like questions. <laughs> in the Old Testament, I don't know of any passage offhand that it refers to God as Father. Mm. And it's not until we get to the New Testament and the Son of God is born and, and, and Jesus began his ministry right away the Bible speaks about the Father. Amen. Okay, right away. Yep. And it doesn't end. From that point on till eternity, mm-hmm. it does not end. Mm-hmm. How is that so? It's <laughs> a good question. Well, I, I would say first, you're absolutely right. There's nowhere in the Old Testament where right. God is regarded as Father. They had a high view of God's holiness, right. His righteousness, His purity, His power—all those things. They, they had a they had a perfect understanding that God was high and lifted up. Um, but they did not have that intimacy, right. right? That that we know and enjoy in the New Covenant on this side of the cross. So, your question, I would say, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the only begotten Son of God. And there's many times in the New Testament that talks about when, when we come to faith in Christ, we're united to him. So everything that the Father has given to the Son becomes ours legally through our union with the Son. Um, you know, I think of the whole, the whole of Romans 8, great chapter on union with Christ. Um, Ephesians 1, talking about when, in Christ this, we receive these blessings in Christ. Paul says we've received every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And he goes on and on and on and on and on. And because of our our connection with Jesus Christ through faith, we become God's adopted sons and daughters. So so he regards us in Christ with the same level of intimacy that he and um, that the Father and the Son have, that, that God the Father and, and Jesus has. We get to experience that through faith because of our union with Christ. So to your point, how does that happen? It just happens through Christ. He's the, he's the one mediator between God and man. So every spiritual blessing, literally Paul says, every single blessing, it is ours in Christ. That's what makes it possible. Now I'm sure there's a lot of mechanics that uh, we'll never fully get our minds around there. But it's Jesus Christ that allows us to call God Father. I'm not, where I'm thinking is probably way outside of what I need to be thinking, but my thought, my thought process is that it only began when Christ yes. was born on this earth. You're right. That, that, right. As if God appointed that time. Oh, He did. Which I, I believe, totally believe, God appoints everything. I believe in His sovereignty. Amen. But from that point on. All mm-hmm. of the thousands of years before Christ, 
Look at this. You don't see? To your point, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. When the fullness of the time came, at the absolute perfect moment in time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And here's the reason. So that, verse 5, God might redeem those who were under the law that we, believers, might receive the adoption as sons. So our sonship comes through our union with Christ. And as you pointed out, it was at that perfect, divinely appointed moment in time when that became a blessing that the believer can receive and enjoy. And I just think, again, um, John 1.12, he kind of gets at this in verse 13, one twelve and 13. As many as received Christ, to them he, Jesus, gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. So God, in his grace and his sovereignty, he allows believers on this side of the cross to know him as father, to have that intimacy with him. Great question. Great thought. Does that make sense, everybody? Very good. Um, okay, so uh, back to, so, so, we, so yeah, to, to Wayne's point. So something we see in those verses about God is that he's father to the believer. He's the father of Jesus. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. And he is the father to those who come to faith in Christ. What else do we see here? Mm, it's rich. Very rich thoughts, Nancy. It's great. So I put down, just going through these verses here. Um, verse 21, I wrote, Worship of God need not be constrained to one physical location in the new covenant. So, um, and, why, and how is that, right? Verse 24, God is spirit. He's a spiritual being. I don't have to go to only one temple in the Middle East to worship God. I don't even have to go to this building to worship God. I don't worship God anywhere as long as I worship him, right? Verse 23, in spirit and in truth. And it says in verses 23 and 24 that God, there's a kind of worship that he wants from his people, right? He, and it's two sides of the same coin. You, you can't have one without the other to be deemed a true worshiper. Um, what do you all think it means to worship God in spirit? What do you think Jesus is saying there? These are very important dimensions to worship. Because in my experience, I would say every believer leans a little bit more one way or the other. I would even say every church leans one way or the other. Um, but if, if we're doing it biblically, if we're worshiping God biblically, and we're worshiping him in a way that's pleasing to him, both of these elements will be present. So let's start with spirit. What are we, what are we saying when we say that true worshipers worship God in spirit? I feel like that has a lot more to do with his heart in it. Like, yeah. But it's not just going through the motions. Yeah. No, that's... Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly right. That, that's exactly what it means to worship God in spirit. spirit worshiping God in spirit is, is having a, a, a heart, a genuine heart desire to worship God. Um, it, it's not this rigid, ritualistic, going through the motions expression. There's, there's a genuine joy there. There's a desire there to worship God. Um, something that can't just be pulled up from your bootstraps like you, you genuinely want to be with God. Now, some days your, your joy might be a little bit higher than others, but 
To worship God in spirit means there's a joy, there's a desire, um, there's an affection for worship. Now, truth, I think we could probably all, and that's pretty self-explanatory. What do you think it means to worship God in truth? It means to worship God in accordance with his word, right? So um, we can be as sincere as we want to be. We can be as joyful as we want to be in our worship. But if it's not consistent with scripture, it's not pleasing to God. And if it's not pleasing to God, we're not a true worshiper according to this passage. So, and like I said, like me, make it personal. I lean a little bit more towards the truth dimension. I mean, I'm a passionate guy. I love God. I have joy when I worship. But I, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not always the best at expressing it, maybe, um, externally. Um, I love to study. I like to read. I like to think. So, so truth is a little bit more of where I fall on that side of the spectrum. Um, whereas some, some people... Um, like Hannah, for example. Hannah, uh, I've known her now for over two years, so I can say this, and I think she'd agree with me. Um, Hannah, she is solid. She loves the Word of God. She knows the Word of God far better than just about every 18-year-old I've ever met. But she leads worship, and she, she, she's very good at expressing her joy and her, her affections for worship. So, so Hannah might be a little bit more on the, on the spirit side of things. Um, and again, there's a, there's a beautiful diversity in the body of Christ where you have people who might be a little bit more on one side versus the, more on the other side. And we, we can really balance that out in a harmonious way. And I think there's a real beauty to that in the body. Um, so that's what, that's what um, Jesus is going for there. That worship of God be anywhere. Uh, it's not constrained to one physical location. It has two crucial dimensions to it. There's worshiping him from a heart that loves him and that has a joy and a desire to worship him. And there's the truth aspect, that that joy, that affection, that desire, it's governed and shaped by God's word. So two sides of the same coin. Where would you say our church falls on that side of the spectrum? Would you say we're more on the spirit side of the coin or would you say we're more on the truth side of the coin? You know, I, I agree both definitely um, from, for the time I've been here. Can we worship God and, and it be pleasing to Him? To not be doing it in truth? No. You can't. There has to. Truth must right. be there. Right. But at the same time, right. spirit must be there, right? Sure. So, um, and that's where, again, Sometimes that's that's why God, I think, in His wisdom, He He has a diversity in the body to protect us from getting too far to one extreme or the other. Um, and, and I say that I say that because I'm, I'm old enough, I've been around, I've been around a lot of churches, and I've been in congregations where when service was over, everybody was saying, "Oh, what what a beautiful beautiful service! We, mm-hmm. we worship God, we worship God." The bottom line was, or is, they, they necessarily was not worshiping God in truth. That's right. Would you say that, let's just ask, open, open the floor, great point. Where do you think most of American Christianity falls on that spectrum? Do you think they're more truth or more spirit? Spirits. Definitely spirit-oriented. Definitely spirit-oriented. That's, the, that's kind of the direction our culture's going. Um, because we're a very expressive culture. Uh, truth... It, there's actually people out there that say, hey, if you believe in absolute truth, you're oppressive. 
You, 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 are, you are somebody who is imposing your worldview on other people and you're preventing them from being able to express themselves however they want to do so. Um, so we're, we're entering into a very unique season of American history, to say the least. But yeah, no, that's, 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 I think, pretty much the crux of number three. Let's go to number four now. Number four. And this actually, in God's providence, Hannah asked a, ver- a variation of this question or a type of this question a few weeks ago. So I'm really glad that she was here to get the answer. I promised her we would readdress it in the future, and we're doing it tonight. Number four, why do you think the Jews of the Old Testament and the Jews of John's gospel missed out on the living water offered by Christ? So we talked a few weeks ago. Um, They had the signs. They had the miracles. They had the scripture. They had all this incredible evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. And why did they not believe? How do we make sense of that? We're going to give you the answer to that question, Hannah. And maybe some of you guys have asked that question at some point in your life as well. I know I certainly have. So what do you guys think? We'll start with you all. Why do you all think that the Jews missed it? By and large. Not all of them, right? We know there's been plenty of Jewish Christians, both in the New Covenant and Jewish believers in the Old. But but broadly, right? Romans 11. Paul's got to write Romans 11 to argue, hey, God is not done with Israel. Because people are looking at the nation of Israel and they're saying... How in the world do we make sense of this? Like they're, they, they're by and large rejecting their own Messiah, right? So how do we make sense of all this? Uh, what do you guys think? Wouldn't a good example be the rich young ruler? Yeah. He thought he thought he had he had kept all the all the laws, mm-hmm. right? He thought he had been a perfect self righteous self righteous person. Mm-hmm. And when Jesus said, "Go sell all you have." He realized, or he never realized, his covetousness. That's right. That's right. And, and, uh, or the the the, the, um, the self righteousness of the Jews. The Pharisee and the tax collector. You think of that another perfect illustration along those lines. Yeah, I think that's I think that's absolutely true. Um, Yeah. You know, uh, back in the day, you know, you got to, uh, uh, even to, to, to then, you know, uh, like we said earlier, uh, Jesus came and did all his miracles and, and performed all his good stuff that he was doing by, you know, by mm-hmm. the Father with him. Yeah. And, and, but they didn't, didn't see that, and, you know, uh, because they were still on the Old Testament law. Mm-hmm. What do you see, and what do we see, um, I think Matthew 15, I got Matthew 15, 1 to 14. We're not going to read that whole portion of Scripture, but um, when, when the Pharisees, for example, um, they, they, would see, they, they would see Jesus and his um, disciples, they wouldn't wash their hands before they would eat a meal a certain way, or, um, you know, uh, Jesus would heal on the Sabbath, and they would get really upset. What did you? What do we see creeping into Judaism over time? Starts with a T. What do we see? Yeah, starts with a T. Legalism, yeah, or tra- tradition. That's the word I was going to say. Legalism, tradition, man-made, man, 
man-made, man-made, yeah, man-made rituals, right? Man-made rituals, man-made um, practices that they began to elevate above Scripture. And it became a power play. And if you read Matthew, I'll give you this for homework. Read the whole chapter of Matthew 23. Read Matthew 23. And in Matthew 23, Jesus exposes the Pharisees for that. He says, these guys have become so addicted to power and tradition and to legalism that, that number one, they heap burdens upon other people that they themselves cannot keep. And number two, they're so consumed with their power and their prestige in the community of Israel that they can't give this up. Because if they give it up, they're going to be exposed and they're going to lose those, those places of prestige in the community that they so greatly desired. Um, so if they would have believed in Jesus, if they would have surrendered to his lordship and said, you know what, Jesus, he's right. The traditions are wrong. The legalism's wrong. The, the, the man-made rituals that we've elevated above the authority of Scripture, that's all wrong. That takes humility. And if you're self-righteous, you'll never be humble. You'll tell people how humble you are, but you truly won't be humble. Like a self-righteous person will not humble themselves. So I think for, for the, I, I said there were two factors at play. Why did the Jews miss it? Old Testament, New Testament. Why did they miss out on living waters? Well, I would say there's two elements. The, the second element that I wrote down is what we're talking about right now, is that there was an elevation of man-centered tradition, rituals, legalism, whatever you want to call it, there were things elevated above the authority of Scripture, and the men who were in power and prestige, they created a system of influence that if they were to receive Christ, if they were going to truly believe the biblical gospel, they'd have to get rid of all of that and admit they were wrong, and they would be exposed as being wrong. They couldn't do it. They were too proud. But there was also another side of the coin. It's a side of the coin we don't like to talk about a whole lot, but it's true. Um, I wrote down John... 12, 37 to 40, and we'll, we'll have this text at some point in the future in our study of the Gospel of John, but there was also a divine side of the coin, and the divine side of the coin was this, that for reasons known only to God, for his own glory and for his own purposes, he, he declared in eternity past, and it was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament that the Jews, by and large, would reject their Messiah. Um, and, and this is what John writes. He says, Jesus performed many signs before them. They were not believing. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he wrote, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah says again, God has hardened their eyes. He's hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. So there's a divine side. God, for his own purposes, for his own glory, he made it to where the vast majority of Jews would reject the Messiah. And on the human side, so there's divine sovereignty, but there's also human responsibility. On the human side, they had every opportunity. They had the signs. They had the scriptures. They had Jesus himself and his teaching, and they said no. We love our power. We love our legalism. We love our tradition. We love our rituals. We're not going to give that up. Because if we give it up, we've got to admit we were wrong, and nobody likes that. I would say one of the hardest things it is for a sinner like you and me to do, even as believers, is to admit we were wrong. 
especially if you've been in a particular belief for a really, really long period of time, decades possibly, to say, I was wrong. That is, that's humility. And it's hard to come by. Anyways, um, those were my thoughts on why the Jews missed it. Why did they miss out on the living waters? Any other thoughts before we continue to number five? That's exactly right. I think, like, I don't know if people just altogether rejected it completely, like they just never even thought or what, but I think that played into it for sure. Yep. Well, think about it. The, the Jews wanted a conquering king to overthrow the Roman Empire, establish an earthly reign. Jesus came as a suffering servant. He's going to rule. But he's not going to rule the first time he came. He had to go and be the sacrifice. Um, and, that, and that's a stumbling block to a lot of people. That's why, you know, 1 Corinthians 1, the crucifixion, Christ crucified. Paul says it's a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. That's what we are. Stumbling block to Jews. Because they had an expectation. Right. What they wanted their Messiah to look like. It's very good, Hannah. Very good insight there. Uneducated, unimpressive family history, and, and and he, this guy, he's the he's God, he's the Messiah, and, and we're supposed to bow the knee to him. We got his brothers over here. We know his family. People probably thought his mother was lying about you know her pregnancy. Probably thought that she was unfaithful to her husband. He had all this stuff going on. A lot of factors here at play. Very that's good insights, Frank. Very good insights. Well, number five, this is great, guys. I really appreciate your involvement. Really good insights from all of y'all. Number five, put in your own words what Jesus meant when he spoke of never thirsting again. So what do, what, what do, you, mean, what do you think it first means to thirst? Let's define what it means to thirst, and then let's define from there how one will never thirst again if they drink of these living waters. So what do you think he's talking about? I feel like um, if we're talking about specifically to like this woman, mm-hmm. she clearly had a void in her life that she was trying to fill with these men that mm-hmm. were not her husband. So in her situation, that was her thirsting. Like she was looking for some sort of satisfaction that she needed to be filled. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I think individually that can look different for a lot of people, but sure. on the the bottom line, like that would be our, our need for salvation. Yeah. You know, Augustine to that point, um, fa- for those who don't know, Augustine, famous um, Christian um, theologian, philosopher from the fifth century. He wrote in the confessions, our hearts are restless. O God, until they find their rest in you. He said our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And, and there's that, as Hannah said, there's that void in the life of all sinners. And they try to fill it with all these different things. John Piper, great quote as well to think about. Um, God created man for worship. The question is not, will we worship? The question is, what or who will we worship? 
So we have this void. We're created in God's image. He's created us to know him, to serve him on this earth. And until we come to faith, until we surrender to God's lordship, that void, we're going to try to fill it with all sorts of other people or different things in this life. Money, sex, success, relationships, power, you name it. Sinful man will look for anything to fill the void that only God can fill. I wrote, um, the inner thirsting that man naturally has for eternal significance can only be satisfied by the living waters that Christ provides to all who come to him by faith. Just the, just the facts. I mean, Christ and Christ alone is capable of filling the void we fill, quenching the thirst we have spiritually. Um, and, and, and that's the thing. It's not just a one-time sip. It's a, it's not, and it's not just in this life. It's for eternity. It's an ongoing supply of soul satisfaction. Only an eternal and infinite God can do that. No, and, and think about this. He does it for billions who come to faith. Like in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be billions of people who are drinking these living waters, as it were, and they'll never thirst. They will always be satisfied. That's how powerful our God is. Pretty incredible to think about. On that same token, when you think about drinking water, you can't just drink one time and be satisfied mm-hmm. with your life. You have to continue drinking. As I'm about to polish off my second bottle. <laughs> Amen. Absolutely. Right. It's that need mm-hmm. that we have to get more. Yeah. And get more and learn more and, and, and yeah. Yes, ma'am. You're exactly right. That's perfect. Great, great insights there. Um, I trust that we've all drank from the living waters that Christ provides. That'd be my prayer for all of us. Number six. What is the significance of Jesus' claim that I have food to eat of which you do not know? Now, this is um, a little bit of an off-the-wall question, I think. At least it got me thinking a little bit um, as I encountered it in, prep, in preparation for tonight. Um, I guess maybe a way to maybe draw some commentary here. Is he talking about physical food? Uh, verse 6, page 35, uh, Wayne. No, no, the that- oh, the scripture, uh, it's verse, um, yeah, he's talking oh, yeah, to the yeah, disciples. 32, yeah, 32 to 34. Good thought. They wouldn't have known about the rest of Scripture if they were rejecting it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. no, that's a good thought. Do you think he's talking about physical food? It kind of answers it there in the, in the verses I gave you, right? So he's not talking about physical food. He's talking about something else. Um, I wish it would have – I wish the question would have gone on to, to include um, – what Jesus says in verse 34, because it clarifies what he says in verse 32. Jesus says, my food, and this is verse 34. 
Um, so verse 32, he says, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Verse 34, this is what the food is. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And then in verses 35 and 36, he talks about how the fields are white for harvest. Um, so what do, you think he's, what do you think he's saying here? I think so. I, I wrote down for me, Wayne, um, that Jesus he had a he had a fixation or he had, he had a he had a tunnel vision focus on accomplishing the mission that he had coming into this world, and that mission was to accomplish our salvation. And to do that, he had to. He had to perfectly obey everything that God had sent him into the world to do. He had to perfectly obey the law, right? Where we failed to obey the law, Christ obeyed in our place. He had to go to the cross to die and and bear God's punishment for our sin, to satisfy God's justice for our sins so that God could forgive us. Like, right, God can't just forgive without justice being satisfied. So Jesus had to obey all of God's law in our place. He had to die in our place. That gets us... The forgiveness of our sins accomplished, and it gives us that perfect righteousness that God requires of us to be in his presence, to be in his kingdom. And then, of course, he he was resurrected to not only vindicate everything that he was and everything they did, but to also conquer death. Right. If we're, we're going to conquer death, we, we conquer death in Christ. Right. Christ, he is the one who holds the keys of Hades and death. So by his resurrection from the dead, we likewise are able to be resurrected to everlasting life. Um, so I, I just wrote down in, in regard to question six that he, Jesus was, he was focused on his mission. He, 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 and his mission was not particularly physical, though there are some physical dimensions to it. New heavens, new earth, resurrection bodies. There are physical dimensions, but there's predominantly spiritual matters he's got to take care of. He's got to take care of man's sin. He's got to take care of satisfying God's justice for man's sin. He's got to allow sinners like you and me to be declared righteous by a holy God. How's that going to happen? Well, he's got to live a perfect life in our place. Um, so that, that's, what, that's what I was going for in question six. There's a spiritual emphasis here on accomplishing the mission God sent him into the world to fulfill. Well, uh, Question seven. How is doing God's will filling and satisfying? So we talked about um, man has a void. He has a chasm. He has, he has a gap in his soul, as it were, that he, he, he longs for the eternal, right? He longs for something that can satisfy him. And as we've been considering, only Jesus, only Scripture, only divine truth can satisfy us, and, and only God Himself can satisfy us. So, why? Do you, how do you think that relates to doing God's will? Why would doing God's will, obeying God's will, provide us with satisfaction? What was that? Obedience. obedience. Yeah. And why do you, why do you think that would be satisfying? What does obedience do for us? Um, and, 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 and let's, let's put it on top of obedience, um, right? God 
God's will is for us to be saved too, right? So salvation and obedience. Let's, let's do a package deal here. How, how is the will of God broadly, if we're in God's will, what is, how does that make us satisfied? How does that give us joy? How does that give us f- fulfillment? Because it allows us fellowship, intimate fellowship. That's right. It, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, notice here, truth for today, that paragraph, bottom of page 35, and this, this dovetails into question 10. I'm going to read that paragraph, and then we're going to go to question 10 because it's really, it's really connected. I wish they would have made it that way chronologically in this chapter, but nevertheless, we'll connect the dots. Truth for today, MacArthur notes. When a person is saved, sanctified, submissive, suffering, and thankful, he is already in God's will. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart, Psalm 37, 4. In other words, when we are what God wants us to be, he is in control and our will is merged with his will, and he therefore gives us the desires he has planted in our hearts. Jesus is our supreme example. He always functioned according to the divine principles established by the Father. And then question 10, how do you know what God's will is? How can Jesus' example help you discover God's will. So um, it's important to note too, just for clarification, we're talking about when MacArthur's mentioning God's will, he's talking about God's commands in Scripture. So how do we know, how, how, can we, how can we understand what God commands of us in Scripture? What do we have to do? If he's revealed his will in Scripture, what do we need to do? We need to read scripture. That's right. So um, if, if, if we will commit ourselves to reading God's word, meditating on it, gathering with other believers to talk about it, um, ask questions as, as we encounter things in it that we might not understand, we're going to grow in our knowledge of how God, requ- or how God commands us to live and how he desires for us to live. Um, did you guys receive a little green book? called Found God's Will. John MacArthur wrote it. I brought a box um, a few weeks ago. Yeah, so um, MacArthur notes, this is fascinating. So if you look at every commandment in the Bible, every commandment in Old Testament, New Testament, MacArthur argues there are, there are six categories that those commands fall into. Um, to be saved, to be spirit-filled or to be controlled by the Holy Spirit, to be sanctified, to be submissive to authority, to be willing to suffer for the sake of God's kingdom, and to be thankful at all times. He says if you, if you take all the commandments in God's word, you could categorize them into at least one or a multitude of those six categories. And MacArthur's saying, and, and he's doing it so, I believe, on the basis of God's word. I mean, I believe this because it's taught in the scripture, not because John MacArthur says it, but I think MacArthur's right, that if your lifestyle pattern is marked by these categories. Not perfection, none of us are perfect, but if you, by the grace of God, are walking as a pattern of your life in these categories, you are in the center of God's commanded will. And in doing so, you will begin, in terms of your decision-making, in terms of how you live your life, you will begin to naturally and organically live the kind of life that God has for you. 
And, it, and, and when you go about making decisions, MacArthur, I'm telling you, read that book. It will really, um, I think, at least like it did for me, it, it'll open your mind to how does decision-making fall into God's will and what he commands of us in Scripture. If you are walking in accordance with those six categories, MacArthur argues that you can trust in the sovereignty of God and in the goodness of God, use wisdom in making decisions, and trust that God will direct your steps and that you will naturally and organically fulfill God's plan for your life. Read that book. It's, it's wonderful. Um, but think about this now uh, really quickly. How, how can Jesus' example help us discover God's will? So think about those six categories. To be saved, you know, Jesus, he was perfect. He didn't need to be saved. So, you know, check that off the list. Um, fill, fill the Spirit. Jesus was perfectly led by the Spirit. Always did as the Spirit directed him. He was, um, he was sanctified. Again, sinless. He lived a lifestyle above reproach. Perfection and thought, word, and deed. He was submissive to authority. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with all men. He subjected himself to the authority of his parents. He even showed respect to those who put him to death by way of crucifixion. He was a submissive man. Um, he, he suffered for the sake of the kingdom of God. He suffered more than anybody will ever have to suffer because he bore God's wrath on the cross on behalf of his people. And he was thankful at all times. Jesus never complained about his circumstances. He always found ways to praise God, right? How can that life be an example for you and for me? Let me ask it this way. If you commit yourself to living like Christ, what will naturally happen in your life? You'll begin to walk in the will of God. Simple as that. If you model Jesus, your life will be at the center of God's will. That's the idea going for here. Now, two more questions. I know we're running a little late here, but this is great stuff. Number eight, back on page 35, and we'll wrap up with question nine. But question eight, reflecting on the text, bottom of page 35. Why did John add the account of the healing of the nobleman's son, and what purpose does this incident serve in John's overall argument for who Jesus is? So verses 43 to 54 contain that section of the narrative, that um, story of Jesus healing this man's son. Why do you think John puts that here? Remember, John's whole purpose in this gospel is to demonstrate that Jesus is the Son of God and that if you believe in Him, you'll have eternal life, right? John 20, verse 31. That's the thesis statement of this gospel. So why do you have this story of Jesus healing this man's son? What do you think's going on there? I, I noted two observations. Um, again, probably a lot more that could be listed here. But I'd love to hear your thoughts if you have any to share Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. It's a remarkable testimony of what faith in Christ produced. It produced salvation, and that day it produced healing, right? Jesus healed his son as an act of his grace. I think that goes to um, my second observation. I said, it shows Christ's compassion towards sinners. His compassion to heal and his compassion to save. It's a beautiful picture of Christ's compassion. And notice verse uh, 48 of chapter 4. It says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Uh, And then back in verse 44, Jesus testified that a prophet has no honor his own country. So he's he's in his own country. People know him. And he, he comes out and tells this man whom he shows compassion to. Speaking probably in the presence of, of many other people who would have been there and would have known him, would have heard all of the commotion about the works that he's performing and what he's teaching. He says, point blank, you guys will not believe unless I perform miracles. That indicates that people really liked what Jesus could do for them. That they, they wanted to see signs. They wanted to see miracles. And Jesus still had compassion on this guy. And it led to their salvation. led to the physical healing and the spiritual healing. And it showed they had a lack of yeah. I mean, until until he, you know, until he performed a miracle, they just didn't really want to accept that. Exactly right. You're 100% right. And that shows his, his, his rich compassion that, hey, like, I'm, I'm still going to do this even though there's a lack of faith here. Um, and then that man, he responds in faith to the, to, to the, um, the miracle that's performed. He says, yes, this guy is the son of God. And it says his whole household believed with him. So it's, it's, it's a great testimony of compassion despite a lack of faith. And then um, it's a great testimony of salvation being accomplished in the midst of a lack of faith. Um, well, I think to me that when the Samaritan woman told everybody about Jesus, that he was the Christ, that's when all the Samaritan women went to him yeah. to see the miracles of what he said. Word would have traveled. Word, I mean, think about it. you got a guy I mean, who's... He traveled all, all the world yep. and everybody all waited to see him. Mm-hmm. No, you're exactly right. I mean, you just think um, word travel. You think word travels fast now. I mean, it was traveling quick back then when you've got tales of a guy healing people, people claiming he's the son of God. And remember what we talked about our last study, according to the Daniel 9 prophecy, the Jews knew he's coming in this window. Like, like he is coming to fulfill this prophecy. So there would have been a lot of commotion and chatter generated about him. Um, Another thing that I noted here, just uh, and this is throughout the Gospel of John. We're going to look at the, the feeding of the 5,000. Um, we're, going to, we're going to see the healing of Lazarus. or, or the, the, Excuse me, not just the healing, the, the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. Um, this account at the end of John 4, I wrote that it testifies to Christ's power and his sovereignty over all things in creation. That's what we see. I mean, he, he, he just, it's just another example that John uses from the life of Jesus. Say, hey, he's God, and because he's God, he has power over creation, and he has sovereign rule over creation. Let me tell you about how he healed this man's son. And he healed him from afar. Look at this. He came to him like he didn't have to go. The guy comes to him, um, verses 47 to 49, and then Jesus said, verse 50, Go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. He went his way. And then as the guy is still, verse 51, he's still going home. And his servants come and says, 
your son lives. He's in good shape. He's healed. What kind of power? Like Jesus, like today, all the so-called faith healers, you got to pay money to go there. They got to touch you. And some people get turned away from going on stage if it's too severe of an injury. Like Jesus didn't even have to go to the guy's house. He just spoke the word and the guy and the guy's son was healed. What power, what sovereignty. It's an incredible testimony. Incredible testimony. Well, well, question nine and we'll wrap up. And this, this shouldn't be overly complex here. And we've talked a lot about evangelism in our previous lessons. Question nine, what lessons in evangelism, sharing the good news with others? Remember, that's what the term means. Um, sharing the gospel with others. What lessons in evangelism can we learn from Christ's encounter with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well? And then what can we learn from the Samaritan woman's encounter with her own townspeople? So let's start with the, let's start with Christ. Think about how Christ engaged with this woman. What do we see that we can learn from? Yeah, we when we share our, our faith with other people, when we share the gospel with unbelievers, we should never do so with pride. We should never do so looking down our noses at people. We should be respectful and gracious, compassionate, patient, even if we get objections, even if they treat us poorly when we evangelize them. We should be compassionate first uh, peter three fifteen. um always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect there's a gentleness to it jesus models that to this samaritan woman um and notice this he's able to do it he never compromises truth like he, he continually shares the truth with her but he does it in a way that is genuinely concerned for her well-being, both temporal and spiritual. And we should model that as well. Exactly right, Hannah. Um, Now, what about the Samaritan woman when she goes to her townspeople? Um, And by the way, if if you say what I wrote down here, this doesn't negate what we just said. So there's a gentleness, there's a compassion, um, there, there's a graciousness in sharing truth and evangelism. But notice what the Samaritan woman does. And I think, again, I think this goes hand in hand with what we just got done observing from Christ. When she goes, and the verse that I really think about here, and we mentioned it earlier, but verse, verses 28 and 29, Jesus just gets done talking with her. She leaves the water pot, goes to the city, and then she says to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? What do you think? We, and that word was mentioned earlier. Boldness. Boldness. That's right. Bo- urgency, too. urgency, right? Boldness. Listen, and this is, I mean, I'm preaching to myself here. I, Lord willing, I'll have the opportunity to do some street evangelism at Victoria College this fall. I want to take some of our... Um, youth there or any parents that want to go. And I have a lot of experience with street evangelism back in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and when I was at the Masters University. Um, Boldness does not mean brashness. Boldness goes hand in hand with that compassion, that gentleness, that genuine concern for another person's well-being, both, again, physical and spiritual. Like you actually care for the person you're witnessing to. 
Um, it's boldness to share the truth and not compromise the truth. We should, we should never compromise truth under any circumstances. But when we communicate the truth, it's got to be done with that genuine love and compassionate care for the person we're witnessing to. And I think, I think today, and this is probably true of all of church history, but I, if you look at social media, YouTube, again, it's like people forget that those are not mutually exclusive. You have the people who are, they're so, they're so concerned about compassion and, and kindness and gentleness, which are good things, but in doing so, they water down the truth. They don't share the full, unadulterated truth of God's word. And as a result, they wind up sharing a different gospel. But then there's the other side. They share the truth, man. They dot all their I's. They cross all their T's. They never lose a debate. But the arrogance and the lack of care for the person they're witnessing to, it permeates the entirety of their interaction with the unbeliever. And we got to make sure we're bringing both a boldness to the evangelism conversation and encounter and also that that graciousness, that gentleness, that love, compassion, and so on. So that brings us to the end of the fourth chapter in our workbook. Hope that it was thought-provoking for you guys. I really appreciate y'all's involvement in reading and interacting with the discussion questions. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed, and hope to see y'all again next week. Let's pray. Our Father, we are, we're thankful for the gospel of Jesus Christ that... In the fullness of time, you sent your only begotten son to be born of the Virgin Mary, to live a perfect life without sin, to die on the cross, bearing your wrath on behalf of us and all who would ever believe. And that three days later, he was resurrected from the grave victoriously over sin, Satan, and death. And after appearing before 500 witnesses over a span of 40 days, he ascended to your right hand. And right now, even as I pray this, he's at your right hand ruling and reigning as the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he intercedes on behalf of us, his people. And he continues to give us the living waters that we have read about from your word. We tasted of them when by your grace you brought us to faith in the gospel at the appointed time. And Father, as we go through this life and the sanctification process, we're so thankful, Lord God, that he continues by your spirit to mediate those living waters to us that our souls will be satisfied, that our thirst will be quenched. And I pray, Father, that every person around this table would continue to be all the more satisfied in their relationship with you, Father. Draw them closer to yourself. Help us to encourage one another as we have opportunities to do so. Would this church be marked by a boldness to share the truth of your word with all those we have opportunity to do so? and a genuine love and graciousness and compassion for those who we share truth with, even when we do so amongst one another. Would we worship you in spirit and in truth? Would we never see those as being mutually exclusive, but harmonious with one another? I thank you for tonight, Lord. I pray that the, the truth we uncovered from your word, I, I pray that they would be seeds that bring forth eternal fruit in our hearts and in our lives. And Lord, for those who are not able to join us tonight, I just pray, Lord, that you are um, protecting them and working in their week to bring you glory and to point others to you. I pray you begin to prepare all of our hearts to worship you corporately on the Lord's Day, which is fastly approaching us. And God, that for the rest of this week, we would 
honor you and the various tasks, relationships, and responsibilities you've entrusted to us. Please keep us safe now as we leave this place and give us rest tonight as we look to begin a new day tomorrow. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.